Uh, no pressure. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you guys may be seated. You guys can go. Thank you very much. Give the band a hand as they, they go. Awesome job this morning. We have had a fabulous week at Presence. You know how exciting... Did it sort of look exciting up on the screen? No? Oh, okay. Don't bother going then. Uh, it, let me tell you, that is only a snippet. You see things there and you thought, you think, have they just taken the highlights? No, that's, they've just taken random shots. It is an amazing, exciting and fulfilling experience. You, you need to be there. So I encourage you, yeah, go and see Pastor Vicky after the service. It goes up by $100 after Monday. Goes from $145 to $245. So for a four-day conference, that is still a bargain. But if you can get $100 cheaper, I mean, I mean, you speak to Vicky, she knows all about bargains. Although I did get more shoes than she did. First time ever. I mean, who, who knows? What? Sorry, presence joke. I, I spoke, I, I, and I know that, some of you weren't here, and, and people who were, memories aren't always that good. But about three weeks ago, I, I preached a message on the fact that Paul was, this is the Apostle Paul, I, I'm on a first name basis, um, was speaking to the Greeks about their worship of an unknown God. And he, he, he basically challenged them on the, on the fact that they did not know who God was. And so this morning... On the subject of the empty tomb, I'm actually going to unpack the idea that the people of the time also had no idea where he was. Because guess what? The tomb was empty. So I want to re read you some scripture. Is it okay to read scripture? Good. I'm in the right place then. I want to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 50, which details Jesus' final few minutes on the cross. I'm assuming here, and I know I shouldn't assume, that you actually know some of the details up to this point that Jesus has been tried, flogged, and crucified on a cross between two criminals, um, as a, actually as an innocent man. And in verse 50, it says, Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook Rocks split apart and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. There was a lot of brown trouser moments, I bet. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that happened. They said this man truly was the Son of God. And many women who'd come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. As evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release it to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock, and then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. 
Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and watching. The next day, on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, Sir, they were currying favour. We remember that the deceiver once said that when he, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. And Pilate replied, take guards, secure it the best you can. And so they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. I don't think we as 21st century Christians can actually grasp exactly how bad things were for the follower of Jesus at this point. This was not a good time. The whole idea of Good Friday, if you'd gone up to them and said, it's a Good Friday, they'd have lynched you. Good? What, what on earth is good? Because from all their past experience, from all of history, by all the known laws of nature, the story of Jesus should have ended right there with his burial. Not only was Jesus dead, but he had been brutally and publicly killed in such a humiliating manner that it seemed clear that he was not, nor ever had been, God's Messiah. This was the truth that was staring them in the face. For his followers, there was the added humiliation that Jesus' unexplained crucifixion, and let me say it was unexplained, up until the very last minute, they were all expecting a miracle to happen. Jesus was going to sort of slay all the, all the soldiers or a bright light was going to appear and the, so he's going to declare war on the Romans and they were going to take over the, as God's earthly kingdom right there and then. They fully believed this. That the fact that he died on the cross was horrifying to them because even though Jesus had told them this is what was going to happen, that they, they didn't believe that's how it was going to end up. And so it, because you think about it, Jesus died on that. They saw him die. The son of God. Now if he died on the cross, to them that says, well, God's saying, Jesus is not my son. Now the one person that they believed was going to save them is rejected by God as well as everybody else. So you can see it's not a good time. Can you understand that? I'd be down, wouldn't you? To make matters worse, Jesus had been betrayed by someone in his own inner circle. One of the 12 had actually betrayed Jesus. I mean, that, that says a lot for your credibility, doesn't it? You know, son of God gathers these holy men around him and they're going to change. Oh, whoops. No, one of them hates him and stabs him in the back. Yep, great. Let's start a religion based on that. That sounds good. Who's with me? <laughs> Didn't think so. Oh, no, was that a hand? Oh, I see that. No. And then even to make it worse, Peter, who was... Their leader, sort of, you know, Peter, I'll follow you anywhere. Don't you worry about these squibs. I'll never leave you, never forsake you. These cowards, don't worry about them. I'm with you forever. He denies Jesus three times. I mean, it's the leader of the 12. How can you trust any of these guys? And then they were so reduced to quivering fear that they were meeting in secret on that Sunday to work out how they could all sneak out of Jerusalem to avoid being crucified along with Jesus. The thought uppermost in their mind was, how can I go back to fishing and pretend that none of this ever happened? 
that, that that's pretty that doesn't sound like a good start for God's new plan on earth, does it? It's bad. Really bad. Terrible. Who's read the Bible? Some bits? Who actually knows that it doesn't end there? So we know, although it was bad, something changed. Because within seven weeks it went from really, really bad, let's run away, to people declaring that Jesus was the Messiah. What happened? What actually changed? You know what it was? They discovered Jesus wasn't where he thought they thought he was. He wasn't in that tomb. The tomb was empty. Let's read from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Now you've got to ask how that happened because it was actually sealed with rope and had a couple of Roman soldiers outside. Big burly guys. Shouldn't have happened. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This is actually a good example of how we know this is an eyewitness account because this is the Gospel of John and John was the other disciple as we saw in that video earlier. But he, he never referred to himself as John. It was always the one whom Jesus loved. Now that, that's, that's a bit like, Alfred, uh, what's his name, Hitchcock? Alfred? Yeah, he always inserted himself in his movies, just little cameo roles, so that he could say, you know, this is, this is my movie. And so John, John always refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. It doesn't say, it's John speaking. He doesn't say, Peter and I ran for the tomb. No, he's odd. They were both running, but the other disciple, me, <laughs> outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in, saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Now, do anybody here know any tomb robbers? I hope not. But if you think about it, who is going to knock out two Roman guards, roll away a huge stone, go to rob a grave and think, oh, perhaps we should unwrap it first before we take it away and neatly fold them and leave them there? No. If somebody had stolen Jesus' body, they'd have hightailed it, wrappings and all, out of there. The disciple who reached the tomb first went in and also saw what also went in and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Don't you love sentences like that in the Bible? We found this amazing thing and then we went home. So despite the Roman guard, despite the seal on the tomb, when Peter and John got there, they found the empty tomb. The presence of the wrapping cloths indicates that the body hadn't been stolen. And suddenly they both had the revelation of Jesus' resurrection. Interesting, there was a theory going around that the disciples would steal Jesus' body. And this was spread 
by the Jewish leaders. They actually understood the revelation that Jesus was going to rise again. The disciples had no idea. It's interesting how the enemies of Jesus understood what was going to happen more than the followers of Jesus. I don't know what that means. I just thought that was interesting. The fact that they went home, who else was there? Anybody remember? Who else was at the tomb? Mary. It says they went home. They didn't tell Mary what they'd discovered. They didn't say, oh, by the way, Mary, we've had a revelation. Jesus has risen. They just left her there. Didn't tell her anything. Because if we read on in John 20, 11, it says Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. The rotten buggers. They scarpered and left her there. As she wept, she stooped and looked in, and she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head, the other sitting at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought it was the gardener. Who, make, who would make this stuff up? Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go and find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them the message. Now it's interesting, from this point on, in the next 40 days, Jesus appeared 12 different times to a total of over 500 people before he ascended into heaven. So why is this idea of the empty tomb and people appearing, and, and Jesus no, people appearing to Jesus? No, Jesus appearing to people, I think, is far more important. Why is it so important to us as a church? And the answer is that, that switch. What happened? Seven weeks after Jesus' followers hit rock bottom, Peter and the other disciples were back in Jerusalem openly and confidently declaring that Jesus was the Messiah and had been crucified and risen again. Something had transformed the dispirited, disillusioned, discredited, followers of Jesus into a dynamic, confident, and expanding movement. Seven weeks. The disciples claimed that what had transformed them was the appearance of the risen Christ and the sending of his Holy Spirit. What's the evidence? Well, there's three lines of evidence. First one, obvious, check the tomb. Unfortunately for us, that ship has sailed. The tomb is no longer there. We don't have the option to actually go in there and check it. The second evidence is to see Jesus in the flesh. Anybody 2,000 plus years old here? Because you might have seen him. But otherwise, that too is beyond us to actually ratify. None of us, I don't think, have actually seen Jesus in the flesh. The third piece of evidence is sitting right next to you. It's right in front of our eyes. The third piece of evidence is the church. The fact that the church exists and thrives after 2,000 years is an incredible testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Some people argue that the church is the result of a conspiracy or a cover-up by the disciples. They made it up as they went along. Let me first dispel that myth for you. Firstly, if you're going to start a conspiracy, don't make your first witness to the resurrection a woman. Now, I know that today that would be a very politically incorrect thing to say, but back then, the Jewish law forbade women from giving evidence in court because their evidence was not admissible. Anything said by a woman was not admissible in court. Eyewitness, eyewitness accounts, testimony, whatever, was not admissible. So if you're going to start a conspiracy, you do not get a woman to say, I saw Jesus Christ, because nobody would believe you. So that's, that makes it extremely unlikely. It's not a good PR move. Second thing is, if you're going to, if you're going to have a conspiracy, get your story straight. If you look at the Gospels, we can tell their eyewitness accounts because they all vary. Not in the main body of the story, but in, in the little details. Some people say there were three people there, some people five. Because who knows that there are three sorts of people in this world, those you can count and those you can't. And the disciples are amongst those. And so they didn't bother to try and edit their accounts to make it look good because they were actual eyewitness accounts. They were interested in the truth, not making up a story. The third thing is, if you're going to start a conspiracy, make yourself look good. The Bible is full of Jesus telling the disciples off for being knuckleheads. I mean, hey, follow us, we're idiots. You know, we, we've, we've got, we know how to take care of you. We, we know all about Jesus. We're, we're the perfect. No, he says, you, you're a doubting mob of, of unbelievers half the time. If you're going to start a conspiracy, you make yourself look good. The other thing, when people start a scam, the backstory actually grows and becomes more believable the longer it's there. And people add to it and build to it, and suddenly it makes sense. And suddenly people start thinking, oh, well, I might get involved in this, because the story firms and solidifies as you go along. The story of the resurrection is in the Bible, is part of the church's conversation from day one. The time and the place are immediate, and the claims haven't changed in the millennia since. And the fifth and one of the most powerful dispellings is the Apostle Paul. He was one of the, most, the church, early church's most powerful adversaries. He killed people because they believed in Jesus Christ. Not only did he kill people, he loved killing people who believed in Jesus. It, it was his life's mission. He would rub his hands together and go to the next town and say, how many people can I, you believe in Christ? Off with his head. He thought it was a great laugh. And suddenly, he thinks, oh, good story. I'm changing sides. I have more chance of being killed if I believe in Jesus, so I think that's a good thing. Let's do that. Do th I mean, Paul was a sensible man. He was fairly well educated. I don't think he'd fall for that. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ himself, which convinced him of the truth of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. It would have to be something powerful to turn a man that de determined to kill Christians into one himself. So what are the implications of that resurrection that we celebrate on Easter Sunday, April the 16th, 2017? Because the implications are profound and they're far-reaching. Jesus' claims and teachings are authenticated as true and trustworthy. We can actually take him at his word. Our enemies of sin, evil and death are defeated. This is... This is exciting stuff. I believe that I'm preaching better than you're listening here. 
Who, who would like death and evil and, and sin out of their lives? Jesus did that for us. God has accepted Jesus' payment for our sins on the cross. It's a done deal. It's signed, sealed, delivered. That is a good thing. The power of evil, evil, evil? <laughs> artists leave. The power of evil has been decisively broken, and our own personal resurrection from the dead is assured. If we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, our attitudes to life, to death, to the future, everything are changed. And the great thing is these implications apply not just to our heads. Because basically I've just thrown out a series of ideas to you. You can, you can logically assess those things. It's all head knowledge. But Jesus came to actually change our hearts. For the disciples, the resurrection was not simply a historical fact. It was a personal experience. On the road to Emmaus, when Jesus spoke to the two disciples who didn't know who he was, they commented as follows in Luke 24, 32. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road and explained scriptures to us? It's that personal experience of the presence of the resurrected Jesus that lies at the very heart of the Christian faith. In fact, it is the fourth area of evidence for the resurrection that can be personally tested by you and me. The resurrection leads us to the conclusion that Jesus is alive today. He is not just alive in a theoretical sense. He is not just a historical figure, but a present reality, a living person we can communicate with and relate to. Not just through our head, but through our heart. Who knows, if you've got friends, who knows that you can have an intellectual relationship with them, but they're not true friends until you have an emotional relationship with them, until your, your heart and their heart are close. The testimony of Christians over the centuries is that this continues to be true. Jesus is alive and can be experienced as someone who transforms lives. Those who want to find the risen Jesus can still find him. That is the message of Easter. Jesus rose again, not just to prove a point, not just to take away sin, but so that those who seek him can still find him. Can I ask you all to stand with me? This Sunday, we celebrate something that is at the very core of our Christian faith. Paul, later on in the book of Acts, actually writes and says that if Jesus lied, if none of this ever happened, our faith is in vain. We might as well go back to fishing and tent making and forget about it all. He says the whole of Christianity revolves around Jesus' resurrection. It revolves around the fact that in 2017, we can still find the risen Jesus if we're looking for him. And before we close our service this morning, I want to ask you that question. Are you here today and you have never thought to look for or you've looked and never found the risen Jesus? That you actually want to have a relationship with a God who will transform your life. It's not just 
a good idea. It's not just a philosophical argument. It's a relationship with the Son of the Most High God. It's something which, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Saviour, when you believe that he died and was resurrected for your sins, the relationship you have with him will transform your life. To start that walk, Jesus never insists. Notice I said that Jesus can be experienced if we choose to have a relationship with him. He is there, he created us all, but he gives us the ability to choose whether we have a relationship with him or not. And if we choose to, we actually start on a journey. It's not one of these step over the line things. One moment you are, one moment you're not. It's actually a beginning of journey. And all Jesus asks us to do to start that journey is to acknowledge that we actually want to. We can just say, Lord, I want to be acknowledged as a child of God. I want you in my life and I want to change how I live to live the way you want me to. I want to give you an opportunity if you're here and you've never done that this morning to do that, to make a confession before God that you want to be his child. You may be here and you've done it before, but you know that your walk is far away from Jesus. Or you may just be here and you're just not sure. You've, you've read the Bible, you come to church, but you have never actually been sure that you're going to heaven. You've never actually taken that step and said, I believe, Lord, that as your child, that is my destination. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to put up your hand if, that, if you... If you think one of those three things applies to you, and I'd love to pray a prayer to invite Jesus into your heart. So can I have every eye closed, no one looking around, every head bowed? And if you're here this morning, you've never accepted Jesus into your life as your Lord and Saviour, or you have and you know that you need to invite him back, or you're just not sure, that your faith is taking you to heaven. While every head's bowed, every eye closed, nobody's looking around, can you just raise your hand right, right now, nice and high so that I can see it? I'll acknowledge that and pray a prayer with you. Thank you, I see that hand. Is there anybody else here this morning who would love to pray a prayer? Thank you, I see that hand. I'll just wait a few seconds longer. Is there anybody else who would like to invite Jesus into their life, to start a transforming journey with him. Okay, can I ask you all to open your eyes? And I want us all to pray a prayer. I think it's great to actually remind ourselves, if this is your first time, I want you to say it with conviction. If it's not your first time, you can still say it with conviction, but with the belief that, God is with you. So let's pray together. Mighty God, God. from this moment, I turn from my old life and move into a new one. As your child, as a child of God, I thank you, God, that you wash away my sins. I thank you that you have made me a new creation through the death 
and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. I now declare myself a child of God. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you put your hand up this morning, uh, somebody will come around uh, after the service and give you a pack to help you move forward on that journey with Jesus and, uh, any que- and answer any questions you may have. So congratulations. Well, let's, let's give those people a hand. Well done. That's an awesome and momentous step. And the reason we have a church community is to actually help you move forward on that path. So don't feel you need to know everything from day one. Ask questions. Thank you, Pastor Vicky.